All right, back on the Young Turks. So I, if you're paying attention, I promised a story for you guys about how the right wing had a great, hilarious fail. We did not get to that in the regular first two hours, I should say. But we will get to it in the next half hour. That is just for members. But I want to make sure we did that story because it is hilarious. TYT.com slash join or become a member. Or you can try it for a week at TYT.com slash trial. That's free. I'm amused now all over the internet now there's conservatives going, did you know that it turns out Jank Uger was behind Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? Yeah, I supported her. Wow, you got me or her? I don't know. Okay, maybe we'll talk about that a little bit in the post game too. All right, but now we have a couple of great guests for you guys. Let's start with the first one. Joining me now is Paul David Pope. He was actually the son of the person who founded the National Enquirer. Wow. Interesting. So, uh, Paul, welcome to the program. How are you? Good. How are you? Thank you for having me. Okay. Uh, no problem. So, uh, Paul, uh, you guys obviously don't own the National Enquirer anymore. Uh, I want to just go through the history of the National Enquirer a little bit and then ask you about what's happening with it today. So, um, who founded it? Uh, how was it run and when did it get handed off? So, my father, Generoso Pope Jr., founded the National Enquirer. He bought the paper in 1952. It's called the New York Enquirer, had a circulation of 17,000. He then grew the paper uh, to what we see today. Of course, there's been a lot of changes. It was sold after my father passed away in 1988 to the McFadden Group, and then sold again in around the year 2000 to David Pecker. Okay, so uh, so it was sold twice since uh, your family owned it. Um, now. I see that you've written in in places about how you defended how the National Enquirer used to be run. Now, in popular lore, the National Enquirer had stories about aliens and et cetera, et cetera. Are you saying that that didn't happen or that didn't happen on your watch? Well, let me give you a little history. It's interesting. I was always teased growing up, you can imagine, in the family. Uh, people asking me, you know, uh, teasing me at school, you know, two-headed babies, aliens. In fact, when my father was at the helm of the Enquirer, the journalism was true. And we just got a bad rap all the time. If we were sued, which we weren't sued often, it was highly, highly, highly publicized. We actually only lost one lawsuit, Carol Burnett, and that was to a sympathetic jury. However, we had a sister publication called the Weekly World News, and that was a publication that had the two-headed babies and the Loch Ness Monster and all those crazy, funny stories. But the fact is, we suffered from negative recognition for so long, my father, running this paper. And this paper was like his baby. He, when he broke the Gary Hart story in 1985, finally the mainstream press started saying, wow, these guys are reporting credible, real journalism. And from that point on, it's like the... Mainstream, mainstream press, everybody started paying attention to the Enquirer. Right, and look, it's well known that Enquirer had for a long time an army of lawyers. And, and so part of that would be to defend against the lawsuits, but part of it was to make sure you didn't get in the lawsuits in the first place. You know, there's a, it's a funny timeline and there's different points at which I'm sure that I could have found stories that I disagreed with or that I wasn't sure were exactly right. But 
you're right that uh, you guys did break the Gary Hart story, which is a massive real political story that ended his career and might have affected who became president. So the inquiry at least does have a track record right or wrong of affecting presidential elections, which brings us to the present. Um, what's your view of how uh, David Pecker has run the National Enquirer? I think it's a very sad state of affairs. You had my father who would have never used his publication for self gain, for extortion, for blackmail. Uh, he would never put out special interest publications. So to answer your question, it would have just never happened. He was very true to the journalistic ethics in what was right and what was wrong. So perhaps David Pecker would is doing what any corporate raider would do and they're maximizing what they need to do. And keep in mind too, the paper right now is $800 million in debt. The circulation now is about four or 500,000. When my father had it, it was 5 million copies a week. And we had a pass along readership of five. So for over a decade, my father affected 20 million people. So the change is, is huge. And, and not only in that, but also in the editorial people and the staff. It was just, you know, we had the best reporters that money could buy. So, look, in terms of circulation, there are a number of factors that go into that, including the decline of magazines overall. But I think a lot of people might be interested to find out how do you have, how do they have $800 million in debt and they could still run it? How does that work? That's a good question. You know, I, uh, David has managed to reinvent himself. He has a lot of shareholders and bondholders and backers. And he's acquired magazines along the way to keep, keep the ship floating. And I think perhaps, you know, you, you, one would need to look into, it's a follow the money story. You have to look into the Saudi angle as well and the special interest again. And, and I don't know conclusively if money was given that way or not, but again, when you're using the paper now, not when my father had it, because I feel one of my main things I need to do is protect my family's legacy and my father's legacy. Again, he's using it for self-gain, promotion, political things. And in leading up to the Bezos, I mean, that is just unbelievable what has occurred. And and I, I, I applaud Jeff for doing this. Uh, I think it's good. I mean, it, thank God he did this and he stood up, up to them. People should stand up to people. No one should be above the law and no one should extort or blackmail anybody. So at this point, if it, you know, that's a lot of illegal uh, actions that they have either admitted or been charged with. Uh, would you mind if the National Enquirer was shut down or would you celebrate that? You know, I was just asked, asked this and I think. The legacy would go on either way that my father started. I think if the paper continues to do the types of things it's been doing the last several years, it's probably better if they shut it down. And I don't see anything or anyone coming that can resurrect this or change the present course. So I, I don't think everything in life is cyclical, businesses are cyclical. So, you know, print media, as you know, has changed. Uh, the interesting thing is my father's imprint is on everything we see today, whether it's, you know, every newspaper, every TMZ, everybody's copied what he's done. In some ways, I think my father would be rolling over in his grave going, wow, this is just a free for all. And in other ways, I think he'd be shocked to see 
the amount he's affected this culture because it's everything we touch, see, and feel today has his imprint on it. Yeah, but that's got an upside and a downside. And what I like is that you clearly love your dad, and 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 I think it's great that you want to defend him. Uh, and I don't know the details of all the stories on which ones were true or not true, going back to 1988. Uh, but I, I do know that, uh, in a sense, you're right that he helped create this paparazzi uh, phenomenon in America. And a lot of people would say that that's not that positive, that we're really prying into everybody's private life and it's gotten out of hand. So is that a downside to your dad's legacy then? You know, I, I, I will I'll, I will address that, and I think that perhaps it could be because it, there's a margin there, and he did push the envelope. But now, again, there were lines we didn't cross. Uh, we didn't use extortion. We we didn't use blackmail. We didn't chase people through tunnels and kill them. Um, now it's it's just taken to the next level, and and I think that's almost true in, in anything in life. So I can't sit here and say and pontificate that. We did nothing. No, there is some responsibility to be had here, absolutely. So Paul, um, I assume that uh, when you guys sold the paper that you got a, a lot of money and makes sense, it was very popular at the time, etc. So looking back on it, would you have preferred to have keep, kept it and run it or are, or were you happy that you guys were able to get a uh, you know, good amount of money for it? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I thought you'd raise that. In, let me answer it truthfully. In every generation, the patriarch picks a favorite child. In the case of my grandfather, and I address this in my book, The Deeds of My Fathers. With my grandfather, he chose my father, which creates an enormous amount of sibling rivalry, even with his own biological mother. So in the case of my father, he had to start out on his own again. And the same thing happened to me. So it's, it's, not, it's a blessing and a curse to be sort of the anointed one and the favorite child. And the, and, the, and the family legacy and, the, and you know, history always does repeat itself. So, but which one would you have preferred? Well, there's no doubt I, I would have preferred to keep the, the family business. In fact, uh, after my father passed away, I, I went and raised money. I raised $400 million, I was 20 at the time, uh, to keep the paper because I worked at the paper since I was 10. And you know, the paper was like my father. So when I, you know, it was it was devastating when I lost the paper. In fact, you know, again, it's a follow the money story. There was complicity in the sale of the paper. The executor sold it to a friend of his. There was a twelve three uh, percent rule, so the paper was sold for four hundred twelve and a half million. I had raised four hundred, so I was young and grief stricken, and and perhaps I should have pursued more legal angles at the time. But later I did hire investigators to prove three things, that there was complicity in the sale of the paper and a, another will and, and, and even perhaps foul play in his death. So I, ha- I had, hmm. ha- had a lot of lawyers, as you can imagine, and investigators in this, in this whole, uh, in my lifetime. It's been quite I, a journey. Okay, we're out of time, but I didn't see that foul play in his death coming. I would have made for a good National Enquirer story, ironically. Uh, and so, yes, uh, but on the upside, you seem to have, you know, you did get a lot of money, so God bless on that front. Um, okay, uh, Paul Pope, thank you, and I appreciate that you're uh, trying to, you know, keep some sort of accountability uh, for the new management of National Enquirer, which is clearly completely out of control, and we agree on that completely. So, thank you for joining us, Paul. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, guys, uh, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to talk to 
Uh, a woman who believes that Donald Trump is right in trying to negotiate with Korea and that the Democratic hawks might be the problem. Uh, it's a really interesting conversation. Come right back for it. All right, back on a Young Turks. Um, I, I just got a text from Anna that she's having drinks with Emma Vigland in New York. Oh, that sounds so good. I'm going to talk more about that in the post game too. TYT.com slash join. Okay, let's go on to a good and interesting conversation here. Makes sense. That's what the segment's called. All right, uh, joining me now is Christine Ann. Uh, she is the founder and executive director of Women Cross DMZ. That's a very specific title. Uh, Christine, welcome to the program. How are you doing? Hi, Jake. Thanks for having me. No problem. Uh, so, first obvious question is what is Women Cross DMZ? We are a global movement of women. We're mobilizing to end the Korean War with the Korea Peace Agreement. In 2015, we organized a historic crossing of the DMZ, that's the Demilitarized Zone, falsely named the Demilitarized Zone because it's one of the most militarized places in the world. But we did it with 30 women peacemakers, including Gloria Steinem, whose home I'm Skyping in from today, and uh, and two Nobel Peace Laureates, Mairead McGuire from Northern Ireland, Leima Gaboui from Liberia, two women who succeeded in organizing women to bring peace to their countries. Um, and we marched with 10,000 Korean women on both sides of the DMZ. And so we crossed, calling to end the Korean War with the peace treaty and to reunite families that have been separated for three generations because of the war and to call for women's leadership in the peace process. I'm going to take my glasses off just so there's not so much glare. Oh, yeah, that's okay. no yeah. problem. So look, uh, I, there's more I want to talk about in what you guys did in walking. But uh, right now, there's pressing issues about uh, what we should do with North Korea. And so Donald Trump says, hey, we should go meet with him and, and try to get to a peace deal. Uh, a lot of Democrats say, no, that legitimizes Kim Jong-un and you should not do that. Uh, what's your take on who's right on that particular issue? Well, it's hard for me to say this, especially in the home of Gloria Steinem, but uh, we are in agreement that it's really important to meet with your enemy. You don't make peace with your friends, you make peace with your enemies. And most Americans have no idea that we have been in a perpetual state of war with North Korea. It is America's oldest war. And from 1950 to 53, uh, you know, 80% of North Korean cities were completely flattened by US bombing campaigns that, you know, completely leveled entire cities. And uh, when I've traveled through North Korea, um, oftentimes they would point to this one kind of building and you know they would keep pointing to that building and I would say what was the significance of that and and they would say um, that's the only remaining building from the Korean War I mean that's one in four family members were killed and so it's really important to bring that history but also an important historical fact that is not included is that when the military commanders from the US and North Korea sat down to negotiate an armistice they promised within 90 days to return to negotiate a political settlement to the war and you know when i was in hanoi a few weeks ago we thought that was going to be done. We thought that Trump and Kim were going to declare an end to the Korean War. It's what the special representative Stephen Began had indicated in a kind of 
significant speech he gave at Stanford a few weeks before Hanoi. Uh, we thought there were going to be partial lifting of sanctions. We thought they were going to open up liaison offices. And and sadly, it seemed that that whole process was derailed, um, probably because of what was happening in Washington, D.C. that day, which was the Michael Cohen hearings, which the Democrats brought that day, um, but also the presence of, you know, Bomb and Bolton, the national security advisor, who was actually the one that destroyed the 1994 agreed framework that the Clinton administration negotiated with North Korea that froze its nuclear weapons program. So uh, plenty of agreements. I think the Democratic hawks have not been helpful in this uh, process. Um, but I, yeah, I, I, I don't agree that the Michael Cohen hearings had anything to do with uh, what went wrong in, in Vietnam in terms of the peace talks. Like, I think they couldn't come to an agreement. Um, and of course, that's the heart of the matter. But what, do you think the US could have done anything differently? Should we have, a, because it seemed like the North Koreans were saying, no, you have to lift all the sanctions. Um, and it doesn't make sense to do that uh, unless we do it in a graduated way. Now, I want to get to peace, but I don't want to give Kim Jong un everything he wants in return for just empty promises. Well, the truth is that uh, we're dealing with a nuclear armed country. North Korea. And um, as William Perry has, who's the former Secretary of Defense, who negotiated the agreed framework, uh, has famously said, we have to deal with North Korea as they are, not as we wish it to be. And the truth is that uh, they, they possess nuclear weapons and they have said they're not going to unilaterally disarm. They're not gonna give it up until there is uh, the end of hostile relations with the United States. And so if we look back at the Singapore agreement between Trump and Kim, the first was the first promise was to transform relations. And sadly, uh, I think we have an expectation that North Korea is just going to take steps to denuclearize. But what have we really done? I think the good news is that tensions have been significantly reduced. We're not at 2017 of fire and fury. We are um, at a place where uh, the US forces commander, General Abrams said uh, that, you know, uh, scaling back and halting the U.S.-South Korea war drills uh, doesn't impact the readiness of the alliance in defending in, in the case of a of a North Korean attack. Um, and so, you know, it's it's uh, and 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 just to the point about North Korea demanding the complete lifting of sanctions, that was not the that was not the case. Contrary to what President Trump said in Hanoi, um, they requested a partial lifting of sanctions, and specifically that evening, it was pretty significant. I mean, this has never been done, but the North Koreans called a press conference and the foreign minister, Ri Young-ho, um, basically countered, disabused President Trump. And he said, we requested the lifting of sanctions that have been harming the people and the civilian economy of North Korea. And so um, I think when we look from the progressive anti-war peace movement, we have seen the impact of sanctions on people in Cuba. We have seen the sanctions, uh, how it killed up, up to a half a million children in Iraq. So I think we right. have to look at the futility of sanctions and actually forcing North Korea to give up its nuclear weapons, so but instead seeing how it's harming um, the, the regular people. But Christine, I have a couple of uh, concerns about that. So the sanctions do seem to be pressuring the government and it's at least getting them to the table, the North Korean government. 
and and they they seem genuinely concerned about it. They do want to trade things forward, including perhaps denuclearizing. So I I understand what you're saying about the sanctions, and I have the same concerns. So how do we balance that out? If we just took away the sanctions, I don't think that they'd give us anything in return. I think it's a step for step. And I think uh, right now we had seen a few weeks ago with the special representative Stephen Begun make a very pragmatic uh, approach and you know offer what the South Koreans, who you know President Moon has been the key uh, interlocutor in all of this. If it weren't for President Moon, we would not be in this place right now. And obviously, without the candlelight revolution and the social movements in South Korea, there would be no President Moon. But uh, what South Korea has been, you know, really calling for is we need a phased approach. We need. Uh, you know, progress towards normalizing relations with North Korea. And, you know, North Korea in Hanoi, Kim Jong-un had uh, offered the complete dismantlement in the presence of international inspectors, U.S. inspectors of Yongbyon, which is their key plutonium nuclear facility. This is uh, what Sig Hecker, the Stanford nuclear scientist, has said. This is like basically the most significant, um, the heart of North Korea's nuclear program. And so they are, and you know, I I absolutely agree with you that North Korea uh, is willing to commit to denuclearization because, you know, we have seen him, Kim Jong-un, make uh, clear statements and we have, you know, in his New Year's Day speech, which many people say signal where he's headed, he did not make a single mention of nuclear weapons or the need to defend the nation. It was all about the economy and about improving the welfare of the people. I think we have, this is where giving peace a chance, um, trying things like opening up liaison offices in Pyongyang or in Washington so that right. there can be more communication. I think it's significant that uh, from the Singapore Declaration, there was the repatriation of remains where uh, 55 cases, sets of remains right. of US soldiers so, um, have been recovered. And that really has improved dialogue between the so those Korean, are, yeah. Those are all good positive steps, Christine, but let's talk about the end game. So that's another, for me, unsolvable dilemma, which is that, in order to get peace, you have to assure the North Korean government that they will be safe and secure. But assuring them of that then continues the imprisonment and brutal treatment of their own citizens, where they well, have concentration spent, camps, well, etc. So, Jane, how do we resolve I just that? Spent, I just spent the last few days with a North Korean defector who joined a South Korean women parliamentarian and civil society delegation to meet with members of Congress to talk about this historic opportunity where nine out of 10 South Koreans want a decisive end to the Korean War. And she really disabused a lot of the mythology that uh, you know, ending a war, having peace with North Korea would just give greater power. I think what is giving Kim Jong-un the ability to maintain a garrison state is the unresolved state of war. And we have plenty of evidence from even the World Food Program uh, country, uh, the director, who is an American, Dave Beasley, who says uh, human rights would improve were there to be a peace agreement. We have uh, the special rapporteur on North Korea human rights who says that peace is going to be an important step towards the improvement of human rights. We have the commission of inquiry report from the UN who also says this. So I think that that is a terrible uh, trope that is uh, getting in the way of progress towards peace. And so 
So we yeah. only have about a minute left or less actually. So uh, real quick, uh, even though Donald Trump is oversimplifying it, is Vietnam uh, a little bit of uh, a guide for North Korea that if we began to trade more and more with North Korea, eventually if we have a deal that they might uh, improve the standard of living, etc. We've already seen, you know, Kim Jong Un make steps towards improving the conditions of the economy. But what's hamstrung? I mean, let's look at the sanctions, the Security Council sanctions that they were requesting. So one is targeting the industry of textiles. Who do you think works in those textile factories? Kim Jong Un or you know the women workers? And we know that when women have access to uh, the purse, that they that everybody benefits from it. So I think we have to have a fresh look, a different approach. And the truth is that the people of North and South Korea and their leaders have declared an end to the Korean War. They have made historic steps towards peace. It's time for the United States to get with the reality that's taking place on the Korean Peninsula. All right, Christine Ann, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Wonderful uh -huh. conversation. All right, uh, we have a half hour left for you guys if you're members. And we're gonna have some fun in that, including this disastrous plot by the right wing that exploded in their face. You're gonna love that story. TYT.com slash join to become a member and get that last half hour. We'll be right back.